Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is someone I've gotten to work with and we've been fortunate enough to have on our keynote stage. I think, Sarah, the last time might have been in Mexico City. You are correct, Matt. Um, so such a pleasure to be here. And yes, I believe it was two years ago. And so right, you know, like a little bit before we headed into the, the world of lockdown. And it was oh. Mexico City at Ad Week. Yep, it sure yeah. was. And I'm talking, of course, about Twitter's VP of Global Client Solutions, Sarah Personette. So thank you so much for doing this, Sarah. Thank you. This Great. is a, a highlight of the day. All righty. So, Sarah, I want to start by going back a little bit. And I know you went to one of the great schools. Uh, we had very similar majors, actually. I also majored in political science. I went to Emory, uh, but I lo always loved Northwestern. And I love Chicago and love that part of Chicago in particular. So you graduate, give or take 2001. And you start working almost immediately as in a supervisor uh, and working at Starcom. Yeah. And I'd love to go back to your first day. And what do you remember from starting your very first job? As my grandfather would say, a greenhorn just out of school and uh, starting what has become an absolutely incredible career in a rel relatively short period of time. And, and we're going to touch on most of it, but take us back to the very beginning of your tenure, 21 years old at Starcom. Oh, I love that. Um, well, first let me the, share the precursor to accepting the role at Starcom. My Dad is, uh, we're very close and we talk often about careers and business and the majority of Northwestern uh, students, especially in the, the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences tend to lean towards consulting or investment banking. And I thought that was the route that I was going to take, but on a, a whim, I had an opportunity to interview at, at Starcom and I am so glad that someone had encouraged me to take that interview because I fell in love in that interview around sort of this, the, the intersection of technology and business and people and what was happening during that kind of lead up to the dot-com bust, but then ultimately the rise of digital, digital disruption in the digital revolution. So without ever talking to my dad, I accepted the offer and called him so excited. And he was like, biggest mistake you've ever made, which there were three points in time in, in my career my, where that was my dad's response. And my dad does not respond to me anymore on, around career choices that way. But it was interesting because his view was traditional business and banking is what success can look like for an individual. And I think what I saw was if you're passionate about and really feel like you're going to learn in the work that you're doing, especially with a team, then you're going to be lit up every single day that you, you go to work. And that was exactly the experience that I had at Starcom. I was lit up every single day that I went to work. And so much so that Fast forward within probably the first first six months of working there, I knew I wanted to run an agency someday. And that's a real gift for people who are just coming out of college to have like 
line of sight to, you know, a career goal that's 10 or 20 years down the line. And so just going back to the question of the first day, what was neat about Starcom at, at that time is they did a training program that was called boot camp. And I was basically brought in with um, 35 other, other, you know, people in my same eight, you know, similar age group right out of college, uh, you know, same interest in sort of uh, thinking about the world of technology and business collectively through media. And for those eight weeks, we got to go really deep into how media works, how the agency works, how customers work, um, you know, how we thought about analytics at that time, which was such a like very in a very nascent stage all the way through to how creative is developed. And so I felt like I came out of that eight week boot camp with a like a, a super solid understanding of, of what could be possible all the different disciplines, how they could potentially work together, even though there was much to do in order to become a subject matter expert in all those. It was just the neatest way to start training. And from that, then I moved into the broadcast investment group, um, which was led by the legendary John Musinski and um, had really my first real year of working post boot camp was extraordinary because he led in a way that includes all people and in his team, like our upfront negotiations, he would bring everyone into his office, turn on the intercom or the speaker phone on the landline because it was still landlines. And we'd get to hear him negotiate. And we get to hear how he talked with respect to partners. And that was, that was like a very, again, transform, transformational start to my career. And I, you know, I only did one year in broadcast buying, but I felt like I had the ability to walk in, in the investment team's shoes as I moved more so into like the planning side of the business. And those shared experiences, I think, create, uh, create a, a tremendous amount of empathy um, for, for teams writ large. So I, I want to keep going with your career path, but you, you prompted a, a, a different question. Back then, we were in sort of that early period where media and creative were being separated and ultimately were completely separated. And now, 20 some odd years later, those walls are coming down. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, was it a mistake way back when to separate them? I do not think so. Um, but do I think we will benefit as an industry? And I'm just putting my client hat on, do we benefit as clients um, to have more connective tissues, tissue now between creative and distribution? Absolutely. Um, and I, I see it sort of as like the ebb and flow of, of M&A in certain industries that then results in breaking up certain, you know, industries and then goes back to, to M&A. So I think it's a little bit cyclical, but the reason why I think it was particularly important at that time is that 
there was not enough investment or resource allocation. And when I say investment, I mean investment in tooling and system and training and resource allocation, meaning people to actually be trained to be able to do this work in media. When media was sitting inside of a you know a larger agency that where where creative sort of reigned supreme, and what that allowed, I think both in SMG, but but really I think the whole of the the broader media agency landscape to do is hone and refine the capabilities that they were bringing forward at the time. And so a lot of like the foundational work that we see in the technology space today and the ability to um, even, you know, consider what a digital first strategy is that that language sounds so old to me now, but at that time that actually was really powerful. And when you were planning and you were buying as one entity that was connected across all channels and was connected across all customers, you were able to influence the way that we, you know, the way that you thought about um, integrated touch points for clients. And, and I'm, I had the real privilege of managing the Mars Wrigley business for a long period of time. And I remember when um, I believe it was Todd Lackman was the CEO at the time and Michelle um, Keller was the CMO and Ray Amati and Amanda Zaki, who are, are still um, still at Mars uh, Wrigley, they challenged us to really think about the digitization of the mix based on consumer behaviors. And so what we saw in the media agency landscape is like a real also pivot towards what are consumers doing today? And then how do we think about making sure that brands have an authentic space to interact? Now, Fast forward to today, the speed with which we can optimize and drive personalization and relevancy at scale for clients to drive like genuine real business results requires creative to be just as connected to those distribution systems and the optimization capability. And technology allows for some of that, but man, it is so needed and necessary for creative agencies to have a voice in that process. So that's why I think it's okay that we're coming back around, but I don't think we ever would have gotten to the place that we're at if we wouldn't have allowed for um, almost that lean startup mentality to exist within the, the media side of the house. And, and I think you put it so well, it was a great answer, uh, that it really elevated and put media alongside creative as opposed to the poor stepchild. Yeah. And you could get into also just the, the financial aspect of it, the media agencies had, and I know this from also running Universal McCann as a part of IPG, you know, we, we operated with a very attractive margin that helped to keep holding companies healthy and allowed them to invest in different assets and agencies and capabilities. And so, you know, both while, while at SMG and then also while at Universal McCann, that different capacity running accounts versus actually running the agency and the business, I took that responsibility really seriously and that contribution that we were making to the to the health of the ecosystem seriously. Hmm. Fantastic. That's just so it's such an interesting area. So, so we move on, Sarah. You had some 
a tenure at about a year or so at MEC with a, one of the many great names, uh, Media Ed CIA, that is uh, yes. lost in history. Uh, and uh, then at uh, about almost three and a half years at MediaVest, and ultimately we'll come back to your tenure at Facebook, but rise to become president at Universal McCann. You're one of few who I know who has had real experience in the publicist family, the WPP family, and the IPG family. And clearly you had different positions, different levels, uh, you know, being president of Universal McCann at a relatively young age. I mean, you were in your early 30s. I was 33 when I took on that role, which so, um, pretty still still surprises me, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's fairly daunting. But uh, any reflections on the cultural differences between them all? I love that question. Yes. And I don't I don't know the differences between the cultures today, you know, aside from the amazing partners that I get to work with across each of those. Um, but the the first thing I'll say on the publicist side and being across Starcom and MediaVest and then, you know, SMG more broadly, um, what was really special, uh, especially at the start of my career and then, uh, you know, over the course of the first decade of my career, is that female leadership was such a powerful part of the company. And, you know, the, the adage, like, if you can't see it, you can't be it. There was never a time where I looked up and thought, I can't rise to this opportunity or to this occasion. There, I didn't see barriers in my way. There might be other barriers, which, you know, was one of the guides in one of the tenants in terms of choosing to leave the agency world and going to Facebook. But I, I never looked up and thought, wow, I, that gender is going to be a blocker for me. And I think like I, I can list off, I mean, Katie Ford, Lisa Donahue, Laura Desmond, uh, Andrea Cancro, Nancy Malahi, like, um, uh, I mean, it's so many people that were really special in that. And then also incredible male, uh, male allies. Tim Castry was one of my bosses there. Um, who was just a, a phenomenal leader for me and a phenomenal manager, Bill Tucker. Um, what an incredible person to go through the global recession with and try to figure out how do we come out on the other side with as much um, with leading with integrity for our customers and for our people. I mean, Bill and I used to have a lot of discussions about that during the, the global recession around 0809. And so that, that it will always be, you know, that I will always have a special place in my heart for that. Um, I think in, at the time for me, WPP was very British. Um, I think it might still be a little bit British, uh, but that certainly was just a cultural difference relative to where I came from. Um, but what I really loved is that I thought their digital capabilities were, you know, just best in class and working with, um, MECI, which was, you know, the, the digital unit there, we really tried to pull forward some interesting, unique thinking. And that's where I started to break into other categories like technology and pharmaceuticals and, um, and even starting to support some startups. So I really felt like my exposure to different types of 
categories and clients um, be, became uh, very rich and real. And then on the, the UM or IPG side, you know, the amazing, and I, I know you know her, Jackie Kelly was sure. overseeing um, IBG or media brands, North America. And she's the one who brought me in to oversee UM, uh, UMUS. And then Daryl Lee also took on the global role at the same time. And then, and then you have Matt Seiler on all the media brands. And then you have Michael Roth, you know, obviously in the whole of IPG. Culturally, what I found to be really interesting is Michael, I thought was just like a very calm, professional businessman and or business person. And I really enjoyed watching him work and how he thought about uh, the portfolio of assets that he had. And then you have in Daryl, this incredible strategist, like very, very much connected to uh, insights through data that helped us to drive really interesting strategies. And, and from that, we won Hershey's, we won Nationwide, we won a series of other businesses, which was really exciting and um, worked together uh, with actually Nathan Brown and Will Wiseman were my uh, co-chief strategy officers, like putting together our new positioning around moments was some of the most interesting work to be done. And Jackie as sort of like the anchor to that, which, you know, for me, I, I, I the, the number one value that I have is integrity. It is, I like say what I mean and I do what I say and I will follow Jackie anywhere because that is how she operates and she lifts people up all at the same time. So a really different, like in, in that regard, a different entity where, um, we were really trying to figure out at, at that time what needed to be centralized and then what needed to be core to the individual agency brand and how do we bring our unique voice out for in our solutions. And then also how do we really make sure that we're training our people to be the best professionals and also give them the space to be the best people that they can be. It was each one, different phases in my life, different, certainly different cultures, but a lot of that driven by, I think the leadership that surrounded me at the time. Wow. A uh, great story. And yeah, Jackie is so wonderful. And you, I, I love her as well. And uh, you wouldn't know this, but the very first event that we did when Advertising Week began in 2004, we organized this incredible, and we did it many more years after that, but the first one, because it was the first, was most memorable. We did a parade of all the icons through Times Square. And uh, Ken Case was our first chair. We opened the NASDAQ exchange. And then we had, I think it was up 45th Street. We had lined up Ronald McDonald and the Red Shoe Car and the Mr. Peanut Mobile and Mr. Clean and Charlie Tuna and on and on and on and on. And we went down through Times Square. We synced the then Panasonic cameras on one Times Square. So we were on the video boards made a left on 42nd, a left on Madison and ended in front of 437 Madison Avenue, where we put down plaques in the sidewalk. And Jackie at that time was an SVP of USA Today. Oh my gosh. And we, and we had a makeshift little red, like what a matador would have, like a little red, you know, piece of cloth. And we pulled and we revealed the plaques, you know, it was all very, uh, I'll call it kitschy production back then. 
Um, but yeah, I've known Jackie since then. And um, I know she and Wendy are working really hard now in her current endeavor at Dentsu, but I think the world of her as well. She is. She's magnificent. And that was pre her Martha days, right? Her, that, yes. I remember yes, through Martha yes. Stewart, we had done um, some some really neat work there, but that is amazing. She's had such an incredible career. She and sure she's has. Just, uh, yeah. So, so you mentioned some other great names. You mentioned Laura Desmond. I'd love to hear sort of pre-Twitter. And I can't believe you were president of UM at 33. That's unbelievable. Um, But who were some of the great minds who you look back at that early phase of your career that really influenced you? Laura Desmond, uh, we'll start with her. What I learned from her is that she was constantly pushing the agency forward to innovate and it was relentless in the most like beautiful way. Um, You could tell she, she almost, and Dreesen describes this about founders, but I I would use the same thing for her. It's like, you could tell she had a secret that she knew that there was a, a better way of, of, um, doing what we were doing and what we are creating and how to position it. And, and I think that's why there was so, you know, such a long run of success under her tenure. Um, the next person, so Tim Castry taught me about the power of transparency and how to really lead a team through extremely open communication. And I think transparency today is a, you know, it's, some, it's a value that most companies try to, to strive for. Um, but I mean, he so much so that like, I have books that he has given me back in the day. I mean, this is when I'm 26, 27, uh, that we're, we were having deep conversations around how do we do this? And, and again, context at, at a certain stage, we were going through the consolidation of Mars Wrigley globally, pitching that business, winning that business, going through the global recession, losing people, fire, you know, having to lay people off, having to bring people on, how you keep people motivated throughout, through that time frame um, when it can feel so personal and so heavy and so emotional for those individuals. Uh, transparency is such a, a core tenet of how I lead. And that was a big part of him teaching me how, how to do that. Um, I think then, you know, you go into the, the, um, well, so after that, I went into to Facebook and then there's UM, I think I already covered off on, you know, Jackie and, and Daryl were, were very, very instrumental in, in my career. Um, on the Facebook side, similarly, I, you know, I, Blake Chanley was my like first, um, kind of first, first boss. I, I, I started out in a different role and then this is actually a funny story. So I, uh, I started out as a CPG strategist and, um, I felt like we weren't doing much for agencies at the time. And to set the stage, this is probably like 2010, there's 1,200 people at the company for Facebook. Um, so it's still really small, even though the user base is really big, feel very scrappy. And um, I uh, felt like we should be doing more for agencies, having come from a deep agency background. So I wrote a business plan and I had never written one before. I literally Googled, how do you write a business plan? I got like eight templates and wrote one. 
Um, and the, I pitched it to Cheryl and to David Fisher and the first time they said no. And then I pitched it again. And second time they said no. And I pitched it a third time and they actually finally said yes, which, you know, really does tell you that perseverance pays off. And from that, I got to build our global agency team around the world. And it was a spectacular experience. Um, within that, Blake Chanley became, he was coming back from uh, running like all of our international operations and he became my boss. And he was such a incredible manager to have, especially at that point in time in my career. Like he, he taught me he, two things really important. Um, well, one, he just leads with humanity and heart and in all ways, shape and form. Um, Two, he opened a lot of doors in terms of relationships for me. I didn't, you know, I didn't have, came mainly from the SMG network. So I didn't have a ton of relationships and he did that so unselfishly. And I think that is such a good sign of a leader because so many people hoard relationships and it's like, we all benefit from knowing each other, connecting with each other. Like what, it was just such a, such a wonderful signal of confidence And then the last thing that I think is, I mean, he taught me lots of things, but the most amazing thing that he taught me um, is he gave me this advice. He's like, Sarah, ride the middle. And my first reaction to that was, are you telling me to just be mediocre? I'm like, I don't know if that's what, and he's like, no, like ride the middle, like stay as even as you can. And I, my translation of that now to people is like, there are going to be epic highs in your career and a company in your life. There are going to be epic lows in your career and your company and in your life. And the, um, when, if you can help yourself trigger an upward spiral, when you are in that, that deep, deep valley to get back up to the middle, then that is a powerful mental place to be. And if you, it's becomes like a learned muscle over the course of time in like a period of crisis, I will be just as calm as in a period of celebration. I will be just as calm. You very rarely see me spend too much time in the celebration or too much time in the Valley. And, and I, that, that really came from him and it was such sound advice. Um, And then certainly, I mean, David Fisher is, I, he was my boss, my second go around, um, such a, his ability to process information and to lead with like real care, um, always just blew me away. I, um, I learned so much about like the broader context of the company from him, Carolyn as a partner, she is, she, she is the most passionate person and like leads from the front in every way, shape or form. But then there are like amazing people that, that you don't see. Like Will Platt Higgins was my partner in crime when he was running the global accounts team. And I think he still is like, you know, there, there are all these exceptional individuals across that, that company and, and certainly other companies that I've worked with that aren't, aren't necessarily, um, always on the, you know, they're not always like the, the headline, but they are these special individuals that actually make the culture of a company feel the way that it does. And, 
you know, that that's a, a will to me or or Patrick Harris or um, Katie Puris at the time who now who's now at TikTok, like just so many special people that I feel like, like I've been able to have the privilege of working with Jessica Jensen, who is now the CMO of Indeed is like one of the most inspiring people I've ever worked with. Amy Brooks, like she developed and manages now all of Blueprint and just like really exceptional um, people in addition to exceptional thinkers that execute every single day and then also bring their whole selves to work so people feel like they can be heard. It's a, it, I, I mean, it's funny, I don't spend much time reflecting on my career, but you know, I, I've really been so privileged to be surrounded by such um, incredible individuals and being able to learn from them and, and feed off their energy. An incredible and a, and a deep roster, and and you see the common thread of success there at Facebook during your two tenures, uh, and the success you're enjoying now at Twitter, where certainly two companies united in technological and engineering roots, but the execution of the business and what makes them successful and in my mind special are the people. Yes, and and. Uh, I want to get to Twitter, but before we get there, you had a brief tenure on the other side working for a company that had a moment and you were sort of there around the time of that moment when they were really something. And that was when you were COO for about a year at Refinery29. Yeah. Um, so Refinery, um, really like one of the the digital darlings. Um, you know, I think there's... To, to zoom out for a moment, when I think about my career, I have always tried to, um, I, I, I almost think about it as this like mosaic of assets um, and experiences. My dad's a financial advisor. So like I think about a portfolio that you're essentially managing of, of, of skills and experiences. And um, in my early days, that was a reflection of like, which categories have I worked on? Which consumer segments have I worked on? Um, from a business acumen perspective, what type of skills am I developing, whether it's management or running a PL or writing a strategy document? And um, that same thing, I applied to what types of customers had I worked for. So I had worked in the agency world. I had worked in the technology platform world. Um, I became a corporate director of um, Build-A-Bear, which is a small cap publicly traded specialty retail company at around 36. So there was like a working a bit client side. And then, um, and then the one place that I really didn't have um, as much shared experience and shared knowledge was in the publisher space. And um, it was, the, for anyone who's listening that doesn't know Refinery29, their mission is to be a catalyst for women to find, see, and claim their power in the world. I, like, to give that as a, a gift to someone who's a, like, strong female advocate and people advocate, it was just the most amazing and empowering thing to be able to be um, their COO. And it was coming off the heels of the Me Too movement. And you know, I think the rhetoric um, 
around uh, women and women's voice mattered more than ever before. So when Philip and Justin had asked me to come over there, I was not looking to leave Facebook, but I, um, I, I sort of jumped at the opportunity in the, in the, the wake of everything that was happening culturally uh, to make a difference. And it was, it was super interesting. And it was at the same time that digital natives were really looking to diversify revenues. So building out models to uh, license out our 29 rooms proper, property. Um, we went deep into building consumer products that had refinery branding, um, you know, building different partnerships there. Um, we already had an influencer business, but understanding how our influencer business needed to be monetized in a, a different way. And then certainly from a technology perspective, native shopping had really just started. And so, um, you know, in working with uh, this amazing engineer, Sarah, who ran our product team, you know, we, we concepted the strategy around R29 shop and how you think about at the time, like the narrative that accompanies the product solutions. And then we eventually hired someone that, and I wasn't there actually when, when that person eventually joined, but you know, starting to build that business organically was really special. So I, um, I feel like I learned so much. I also learned so much while being there because on day one, like literally January 2nd of my first day was the day that Facebook changed their algorithm to no longer uh, provide as much scale or reach for publishers. And in that year, there were many publishers that wound up going out of business and there was this in- incredible gal, Stacy Eisner, that I worked with, who was the head of my um, growth marketing and uh, strategic intelligence team. And she built the plan that basically looked at how we think about all of our different channels as as way. So like everything from Apple, Apple News to um to other other forms of traffic outside of Facebook in order to to rebuild the stability of that audience and and it was every month she she worked on focusing to fix it and it was really special because coming out of that year they were in refiner was in such a better position and had moved away from you know the concept of growth hacking like i think a lot of publishers hey, were growing up in this growth hacking mentality. And in order to be a sustainable business over the course of time, you need to make sure you have a real quality audience in addition to the volume of audience. And she taught me a lot um, during that, during that time frame. And it was just, it was, it was a really interesting opportunity. Um, but at which point Matt Torello talked about amazing people uh, is uh, who's my boss and just an exceptional human um, had uh, approached me and we talked for a long period of time. Was they, I didn't think I was going to leaving, but I I could not have uh, chosen a, a better company. I mean, it's it. I feel like this is the culmination of my career in many ways. All of the the beautiful gems of each of those experiences sort of manifests itself in fully in all that Twitter is, which is really, really special. So, so let's go back there. Matt reaches out to you. You're having a great time, you know, killing it at Refinery29. Uh, but you get a phone call or an email 
and that sets you off on a new path. Yes. Well, and, and someone once said to me, as I've made choices throughout my career, the, they were like the foolish weight. And, and I, 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 I say that I will also say at the same time, loyalty is not dead. So this isn't my, my career manifesto is not to, especially to young people listening, like, you know, jump, jump to different companies in order to excel. If you look at my career, I've actually spent the, you know, the, almost the first decade, primarily at SMG and my second decade, primarily at Facebook. I feel like my third decade of my career is going to be spent at Twitter. But um, if you choose a job based on the value system of the people you will be connected to, and you choose it based on what you are going to learn, it is never going to be a bad decision. And with that, it's also a reason to leave companies. Like if your value system is in conflict with the leadership of that company, then and it's a reason to like lift your head up and take pause and reevaluate. And, or if you're not learning anymore and you don't feel like through raising your hands and also I'm, I'm a really big believer in being the master of your own education, like leverage the resources around you to, to like keep learning. I mean, all that stuff I described to you at refinery, I learned that through textbooks. Like I had never thought about consumer licensing before. And I, I had like three different textbooks that I utilized and I talked to a series of experts. And then with this amazing gal, Samantha Baker, we built a plan, um, you know, and, and similar around franchising, like that, that kind of stuff, it's all possible if you just lean into accessing the resources that are so available to us today because of the, like this just digital age of knowledge infusion. Um, But going back to the, the Twitter piece, I mean, from Jack to the entirety of his leadership team and, you know, Matt in particular, they just lead with such care and such integrity for our commitment to our people on our platform, to our customers that are helping to support our platform through advertising and connecting consumers in the most real and valuable way through to every single individual inside of this company. And I have never seen anything like that level of commitment and humanity and care with which um, I think we, like we lead the company. It is um, it's, it's beyond compare of anything I've ever experienced uh, in, in what has been a really neat um, career where I've had the privilege of, of, you know, having access to, to many folks that care deeply. Yeah, no, and you've you've seen an awful lot in a relatively short period of time. So, Sarah, VP Global Client Solutions for a company like Twitter, that's a big, big job. Take us behind the curtain, and when we break down Global Client Solutions, talk about what that means and how your agency background has helped you, but it seems like here it's a much broader set of responsibilities that you have and a true global remit. Yeah. Well, and not the first time I've had a global remit. I would say in running the second time I was at Facebook, I ran global business marketing, which was fully global as well in the global agency team before that. But you're you're right in that it it all are different. Um, and 
similarly, just talking about that mosaic of experiences, I've had the opportunity to be a pure play marketer and running our business marketing team for Facebook. I've had the opportunity to run a company and, you know, being the president of UM, I've had the opportunity to be a COO. And the thing that I had never done um, was really drive and be responsible for the, the revenue of a company. And I think that there is uh, just, again, this sort of like thing that drives me from a personal perspective is having as many experiences of the people that I work with or work for or work for me so that I can give feedback in a more constructive way that I can drive strategy in a, in a, a more intelligent, faster way um, so that I can have empathy for the challenges that they might have and, and trying to pitch for resources. Like this is, um, it's, it has been a, a, a distinct part of my career and, um, you know, always trying to have that just different experience. So this is one that like squarely was missing from, I think my, my resume, if you will, but that wasn't the lead, the lead driver, but it was one of the things that was really interesting. So to go behind the scenes. um, So my team is um, almost about a thousand people around the world. Um, The majority of our offices around the world are run by, um, the revenue leaders, the country directors that were put up into my um, incredible group of regional vice presidents. Um, they are in, in, in that, for that particular talent, and then I'll go through some of the other teams, that, that group are like the lead drivers of revenue. They're the, they are um, the country directors all the way through to the client partners and CAMs that are you know, pitching business bringing valuable solutions to clients, building relationships. So more of your like, I would say traditional sales, but I think sales just in general has evolved to a much more consultative approach and one that's a lot more human based on what we've also experienced from this last year of, of COVID and not you know being virtual versus being in person. Um, then I also have a team that is um, focused on brand strategy, um, uh, creative innovation. There's a lab team um, that we oversee within that. Uh, This group does everything from thought leadership and research through to um, creating like new innovative product solutions to be brought to market. Um, I have a team that is our global business partnerships group. So this is our global agency team, our um, our uh, sales partners, our resellers that sit in, in markets where we might not have an office, um, and then our API solutions team. So our team that focuses on the broader ecosystem and how we can drive uh, integrations with the third parties to uh, scale, scale innovative solutions for customers today. Um, and then I... Um, have I, I work like my other team is sort of this revenue product specialist organization that actually used to sit in my team. And I recently um, moved that over to our strategy and ops team uh, so that we have better like cohesive 
connection with our product organization, but that group, we basically do all the go-to-market for all of our channel segmentation across the various markets. Um, and then I think what's neat from my view um, is one, it is it really is global. I mean, prior to the, uh, the pandemic, I've been to every single market in, so in the first 15 minute, months that I was here, I've been to every single market except for South Korea. Uh, I take being global really seriously. I think that it matters that you have presence and that you understand everything from, you know, the legal ramifications of operating inside of market tax structure, all the way through to, you know, what are customers locally feeling uh, around things like brand health uh, and brand safety. Um, And I think that one of the ways to do that is that you really have to be present on the ground Um, all the way through to, you know, how we set the course for the diversification of our revenue over the course of the next three years um, is a really neat part of the job. And then what I'm very much enjoying and and learning a lot around is just more broadly the work that our incredible um, public policy team does. And, you know, you'll, you see that play out in things like our, you know, stance on banning political advertising and, um, you know, the discussions around that and, you know, what should our stance be and, um, you know, wanting to serve both revenue for the company, but also wanting to make sure that we are, we are taking a principled stance and working through the decisioning framework to get to the best, best outcome that is consistent and unified um, is, has been a, a amazing part and learning of this role. Um, and in the last part I will say is just, I, I, I take the role of uh, being a leader and, you know, not just people that report into me, but for anyone across the company, like modeling what inclusive leadership looks like, it, it, it matters. Like there, we, every single person in across our organization has, you know, the power of common purpose leadership. And we all have the opportunity to create space for really diverse perspectives to be heard for us to create a healthy environment for breakthrough ideas to shine through to ask the question of who is not sitting at this table that needs to be sitting at this table. And I, I, if there were any legacy that I were ever to leave, like, I would want it to be that if people saw me as a, a, a really, you know, a, a, a kind person, an inclusive leader and someone who got shit done that, that like that would, that would sum it up. And I, I hope that's what I'm doing today um, at Twitter. That's a great summary. So we've been lucky enough to get to partner with your team at Twitter all over the world. And Probably one of my favorite uh, executions or activations, I should say, is the Blue Room that your team does with us down in Latin America, in Mexico City. I absolutely love that. And there's a real spirit of humanity, which you touched on, but also at Twitter, such a passionate commitment to not getting lazy. And you're constantly innovating, constantly inventing, constantly reinventing. Talk about where that comes from and what it must be like for you sitting in, you know, pretty close to the center of the center spoke 
in executing a lot of those plans and making them make magic for clients all over the world. I love that. So it's funny. I think if you're, if, if you're not changing and it doesn't feel like the company or that you're in is moving fast, then something's probably broken. And um, I credit actually, especially Stephanie Prager in the GBP team and uh, Alex Josephson, who runs our, our Twitter next team, like they are sparking new thinking and new ideas, new modes of operation every single day, challenging us to be better. And I think that is, you know, indicative of the the whole of the culture of, of TCS um, wanting, which is Twitter client solutions, wanting to like ensure that every customer feels genuinely legitimately cared for. And that at the same time, we are, doing everything we can to move and operate with speed for each other and in service of and courageous service of our customers and ultimately the people on the platform. I think more broadly as a company, um, you know, I have, I've, I've been here for two and a half years now, so I can't talk through the, the history of my experience at the company, but I do think, you know, the, the leadership and team in particular, and I think certainly under, under Jack's leadership, like there is a, a, a real, um, a, a real drive to make sure that um, we are bringing an experience to people that the you know that those that are on our platform each and every day, almost two hundred million that come each and every day, to find a a fun and fluid experience that connects them to the hundreds of thousands of topics and interests that they might care about. And, and sometimes we, you know, some, sometimes we get it right. And sometimes we don't like, there's a real, real spirit of prototyping and testing and learning and building in public, like legitimately building our solutions in public and getting feedback from those that are on the platform, which is like, if you, if you think about Twitter, it's basically like the, the largest repository of human thought, because it is a purely public platform made up of, of incredible people who really care deeply about the, the, the topics and the subjects that matter to them. So we see this play out in things like on the policy side, we have a, um, a, a public, um, a public leader notice that, um, we put out or a public notice, public leader notice policy, which is basically if you know, a public leader who informs a public conversation has said something that might violate our terms and conditions, the in under first review, what we will do is put a notice over like a gray box over that particular tweet, and we will indicate that it, you know, violated our terms and conditions. And um, and there's there's more nested inside of the policy, but but I think it's really interesting right now. We've just um, shared out with the broader community and said, "Tell us if if you feel like this is this is the right policy. Do you want us to see us be more aggressive? Do you want to see um, you know us take a different a different tact?" Um, and we'll utilize that feedback to help inform our policy and our public or our product positioning. Or we have something going on right now, which is a really neat experiment around fact checking called Birdwatch and. We are utilizing our 
community to do fact checking around an effort to minimize the spread of misinformation or disinformation. And you're essentially getting like rated and ranked based on the accuracy of your fact check. And can, it's an interesting hypothesis and experiment. Can a community self-police based on the just size and scale and volume and velocity with which information and data, you know, gets plugged into and activated on the platform. And I, I think this is, these are just like wonderful examples of us um, prototyping and experimenting to learn and scale. And that connects all the way through to like really massive topics like the open internet and the free flow of information. Um, so I, I just, I think we're, we're very consistent in our approach around, um, you know, having an idea, wanting to get feedback from uh, the broader community and then build with speed and then ultimately iterate around upon that solution. Fantastic. And, you know, there's a great old movie line, Sarah, morality is subjective. And uh, it's uh, three little words, but, but powerful words. And, uh, uh, my own sense is watching how Twitter has handled some awfully challenging situations is that you come out on the right side. And again, that's highly subjective, especially in these, you know, incredibly fractitious times. But um, I've never been prouder to work with a, a partner. We love win on your team and, and oh, everybody awesome. else, everybody else that we work with. And I just love the way that you handle things. Um, from top to bottom. I appreciate that. I think, you know, joining Twitter, I get asked often, like, what was the thing that most surprised me? And uh, really what I found to be amazing is the incredible integrity with which Jack and the whole management team runs the company and how also everyone is really genuinely themselves. And I feel like that, that like, that, you know, the role of like ethical corporate behavior comes out in the way that we, you know, made our initial move on health being the number one priority of the company, our swift movement and leading policies around misinformation, public notices, privacy, all the way through to just even was last week or maybe, maybe a week before our first global impact report. And we make these decisions with transparency and with the utmost integrity. But I will also say, and this is what's really, I think, special about this company is like, we don't, we don't always get it right. And when we don't, we acknowledge that and or we don't always take pride in decisions that are principally based, but might have a challenging outcome, you know? And I think that's the, like, I, what I appreciate is there's a real, there's like constantly retrospective thinking about the decisions made to make sure that we can be better with each and every day, every step forward, every next decision made, every new solution created in service of the people on our platform and the incredible advertisers who we get to partner with each and every day. Fantastic. Well, Sarah, this was such a joy. And, and I must say, I had not really pieced this thought together until just now. But if your next 20 years or anything like your first 20 years, I, I think you might be in charge of the whole planet. 
And uh, that might be true, by the way. And uh, and I I love talking to you. And thanks so much for making the time and spending it with us here on Great Minds. I loved having you. And I think we may have to have you back for part two. You may be our first return guest because I think there's a lot, lot more to talk about. I would be honored. It was such a fun hour with you. And thank you for just allowing me to reflect on such of the so much of the goodness that has um you know that, that that i've been able to experience and the people i've been able to work with that was actually such a nice nice uh trip down memory lane so um i look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon and hopefully in mexico city you bet sarah thanks so much have a wonderful day you too Thank you.